أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم سبحانك اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وعنده مفاتح الغيب لا يعلمها إلا هو يعلم ما في البر والبحر وما تسقط من ورقة إلا يعلمها ولا حبة في ظلمات الأرض ولا رطب ولا يابس إلا في كتاب مبين One of the things that distinguishes Islam as a religion but also as a uh, body of study and um, an academic and scholastic pursuit is one of our sciences that is called usul al-fiqh and and many people have heard me make reference you know previously to this uh, to this science and the reason is that usul al-fiqh is at the time when Islam appeared in the world of you know religions and the world of thought and things like that it was one of the inventions that Islam came up with that the Muslim scholars invented this science of how you interpret these these texts in a sense how you think uh, a science of first principles so I, the whole series is really about principles and the reason uh, I'm interested in that is that one of the the things that I benefited from when I studied is I was able to study this science quite extensively and it influenced me obviously as you can tell tremendously and it really is very fascinating and we've made mention to it in the past and in a previous uh, episode we talked a little bit about uh, usul al-fiqh and what are some of the concepts of how the jurist theoretically thinks you know how do we know what is authority in religion and how do we know that it's it's uh, authenticated etc uh, today i want to talk a about the same subject but from a slightly different point of view vis-a-vis -vis what usul al-fiqh uh, or the you know uh, methodology of jurisprudence as sometimes it's translated what it means today this might seem like a strange conversation but hopefully at the end you will see that it, it makes a lot of sense or at least its importance will make sense I mean this is a very highly um, this is a field of high expertise I mean it requires a lot of requisite understanding and knowledge of different branches of the Islamic sciences to understand. So we're, we're going to talk about it. We're not necessarily going to talk as if we're inside it. So in the beginning, what would be appropriate to say is, of course, we would all agree that the Qur'an is the access around which revolves all of our you know, personal, devotional uh, acts, but also it's the access around which revolves all of the Islamic sciences. So any Islamic science that we have, whether it be grammar and different linguistic sciences, whether it be the different sciences of hadith, whether it be the science of theology or its branches, anything that you can think of that you would study at a seminary, let's say, at a, at a formal Islamic seminary, all of those sciences were developed with one goal, which is to understand the Qur'an. So to understand the Qur'an, you need to know the language. But of course, the language is not just one thing. You need to understand the vocabulary. So we have dictionaries, the science of dictionaries for people that are into that. You need to understand how the, the, the verbs conjugate in the Arabic languages. So we have the science of morphology, of sarf. You need to know how the words fit together in a sentence. That's the science of grammar or nahu, so on and so forth. So just from one idea of language, you need to know all of these things. So 
the early generations, you know, when they took when they took charge of the faith and they took charge of the community, you know, they were obsessed. I mean, really obsessed with all of these things, even calligraphy, the art of calligraphy to beautify the writing of the Quran. And of course, as is natural, as time progresses, these uh, disciplines become their own thing. They bec- they have their own areas of expertise, and and you know you you can get very very deep into it and lost in the you know the ocean of those of those sciences. But if you take a step back, it's helpful that we remind ourselves that all of this was done really just to understand the Quran. And in the process of doing that, there are three areas that became important that sort of around which. It emerges this science of usul al-fiqh or the science of the methodology of interpretation. One is what are the sources that we are going to use for our research? And of course anybody would, would say, okay, well the Quran and the Sunnah. And as I said previously, while we, we take that for granted now, there was a time where that actually had to be debated and established. That that was, okay, that's what we're searching in, and that's what defines Islam. And that's important, and I'll tell you why, as just as like a tangent, there is this, um, I don't want to say it's a movement, but there is this pattern of thinking that exists in some Muslim circles today, usually from the academy, which as many know, I'm not a big fan of, that if anything happens in the Muslim world by Muslim people, it's somehow Islam. But yes, maybe culturally, if there, there can be Muslim you know, fashion designers, there can be you know, Islamic architecture, things like that. But when we talk within the subject matter or the science of interpreting what the Qur'an and the Sunnah mean, no, that stuff is not Islam. If somebody out there is a Muslim or in, in you know, New Delhi or Cairo or Istanbul or Damascus or wherever, you know, Fez, Makna, anywhere in the Muslim majority world and does something, we don't say, okay, then that becomes, that's an Islamic thing. No, that's not what Islam is. That's why we keep saying ISIS and Al-Qaeda, all these people, that's not Islam. That's something else. That's like Mik Islam or Islam light or Islam minus or Islam zero or something. It's not real Islam. Why? Because of this question that we come back to, you see sometimes we laugh at these things, but now we see why, we, why we've inherited it, is that we need to remind ourselves, what is it that we use to define Islam? It's the Qur'an and the Sunnah. That's what we're looking at. Now there can be other things, there can be cultural expressions, but that's a different subject. But that's not going to have any necessarily authority in how we derive rulings. So the first thing, and that's just a little tangent, but the first thing is, what are the sources of our religion, we say the Quran and Sunnah, we kind of get that. But how then, the second question is, how then can we research and understand and interpret the Quran and the Sunnah? That's really important. You know, do we use, um, uh, you know, political theory, modern political theory to interpret the Quran and the Sunnah? Uh, do we use uh, modern psychology to interpret the Quran and the Sunnah? Of course, we use the language sciences of you know, grammar and morphology, etc. We, we, we agree to that. But this is a question that needs to be had again. And, and this is what we're going to talk about the bulk today. So we'll come back to that. So how is it that we look at the Qur'an and Sunnah and interpret? And then number three, what are the conditions for the person, for the researcher themselves? 
So when you come and you open the Qur'an and you open the canon of the hadith and you look at it, you are bringing yourself to the table. So you are a bias. Of course, in anything. that you, 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 There is your own bias in reading it. So what then are the conditions? Can anybody open the Qur'an and the Sunnah, uh, Qur'an and the canon of hadith and just start interpreting away? Technically, no. But unfortunately, that's, what ha- that's how we got into this mess. That many people did that for the last, you know, two, three hundred years. And that's how we have all of these uh, fake Islams out there. But because they've just sort of gone on and on and on and they've, no one is, uh, we haven't checked them loud enough, now people think that that's like an established way of looking at Islam. So we have all of this confusion. So that's why this topic is, I mean, it might seem a little abstract, but you can kind of hopefully glimpse uh, why it's important. So the three areas are what are we researching or what forms our religion, the Qur'an and the Sunnah? How do we approach and research and interpret? And then what are the conditions upon the one that is approaching? These three questions, and these are very high-level questions or very high-level theoretical questions around which form this entire science of usul al-fiqh, the methodology of jurisprudence. And this is really the defining characteristics of Islam. Of, of academic scholastic Islam in both its Sunni and Shia expression. So when we talk about orthodoxy or what is true Islam or right Islam, we are essentially talking about usuli Islam. In, in other words, an Islam that is alive, that is current, that is constantly interpreting. And all of this is what we mean by the word ijtihad. That's what we mean by the word of approaching the primary sources and interpreting. So, I gotta move this. That's very ominous. <clears throat> okay. So, we've talked about it before. Why am I talking about it again? When I studied, or if anyone was, you know, spent a few years studying, you know, the Sharia and these type of sciences, you tend to read books that are old. You know, you tend to read books that were written several hundred years ago. And it's like a pride thing, you know, like I read this, you know, commentary by Imam al-Nawawi. You know, oh, I, I read and understood this legal work by Imam al-Ghazali. Because the, the older the book is, the more rich the academic and the scholastic discourse is, the more rich the language is. So as a student, if you can read and understand that, it's sort of like, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm doing something right because now I can understand. I don't need to read the modern summary. I can read the original work. But in that process, and that's normal in, 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 in when you study these, you know, sciences and disciplines, you know, you read the, 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 the great figures of the past. But one of the things that you notice is that really from the time of the Sahaba, to maybe uh, the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. Life was kind of the same. Life was agrarian. And we're talking about the whole expansiveness of the Muslim world. Now, the many things happened. Many people r- rose and fell and, you know, Genghis Khan and all of these khilafas and all, yeah, all of that stuff happened historically. But I'm talking about the matter of life, like how you live life. You know, when you read about wudu, 
people still had to go outside, you know, draw water from the well, uh, squat down and make wudu. Which is why when you read a, a medieval book of law and you talk about how the wudu is done, there's no concept that you're standing at a sink with running water. Maybe, you know, you're, you're wealthy and you have like an aqueduct that feeds water into your palace or like you're the sultan or something. Or maybe you go to the big mosque and there's running water, but still you're, you're squatting down. If you've, you've seen any of these medieval mosques, pictures of them, and there's like a big fountain in the middle of the mosque, you still have to go, you know, roll up your, your garment, squat down and make wudu. And that was pretty much how it was from the time of the Sahaba until, you know, around the, the early 1800s. Banking. Well, there's really no banks, but finance. It was the same. The Sahaba, the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba talked about gold and silver, the dinar and the dirham. And uh, the scholars of the 1700s and the 1800s, they also talked about the dinar and the dirham. You know, gold and silver was still like what currency, how you buy and you sell things. What people ate. Um, if you needed to travel, so people that needed to travel for Hajj, for example, which is like the big Muslim journey, it was pretty much the same. You need some kind of riding animal uh, or you're walking. And you've many, many stories of people that have walked to Hajj. Now, you're like, that's, that's insane. Yeah, I got to fit Hajj in, in between the two meetings and in, in between my semester. and be, you know, I want to fly and fly out. But for people that went to Hajj, that was almost like a year commitment. Or a half year commitment at least. Because you had to go and you couldn't always be riding. But with the Industrial Revolution and the increase of technologies as this came to the Muslim world, many things changed. So our communication with each other has changed, our modes of transportation has changed, finance has changed, education has changed, the whole colonial experience that was sort of thrust upon much of the Muslim world definitely had an impact. So there are all of these new things that happened from like the 1800s till now. Now, even, and what I'm saying is, is even the case in, you know, in other parts of the world. This is not just unique to the Muslim world, but this rapid advance of technology, of communication, of industry, of um, uh, all of these other sectors is something that the whole world experienced. So now when I read the works of Imam al-Ghazali or the works of Imam Abu Hanifa or the works of Imam al-Shaf or whatever, and I bring that into the here and now today, the here and now today has fundamentally shifted from what they understood as commerce, as trade, as just, you know, day-to-day -day life. And part of the job of the jurist, part of the job of the faqih, in interpreting the Qur'an and the sunnah, is to bring the Qur'an and the sunnah into the here and now. But the here and now has changed and is changing and will continue to change rapidly. I mean, my children, they comment about things that I had when I was growing up and they make me feel ancient, you know, but I mean, I'm not that old. So in their eyes, it's changing even faster, you know, almost on a year to year basis. Whereas maybe people that are older, you kind of remember, you know, cordless phone was like the big deal in the house like now we have a cordless phone you have to you know open the antenna you know like x number of feet and you'd see how far away you can get from the base and you know that was like technology but now we have cell phone you know i don't even know people that have a home phone anymore or, or use it at least or many people don't even know what their home phone number is because it's all just the the cell phone but now 
for us, the cell phone is normal or a smartphone, whatever. But 10, 15 years, it might, we might be somewhere else. It might be an implant or whatever the case may be. So you see there's this rapid change. Now, the faqih, the faqih's job now is even more challenging. Because when I look to my usul al-fiqh, this thing that we're talking about, of how I understand the Qur'an and the sunnah, the tools that I had in answering those questions were based on a reality that has now fundamentally shifted. So in the West, and not everything is the East and the West, but let's just say the West in general, you know, Europe, North America, are you know, the culture that we predominantly, people listening predominantly live in most of the time. They had their own challenges of interpreting what these changes mean for their own values. So modern psychology, uh, modern economics, economic theory, political science, uh, construct of government, uh, organizations, administrations, you know, the science of running an organization, the science of administering and managing many people. No medieval faqih has worried about that. They're not worried about, about you know, uh, employee benefits and uh, open desk model versus collaboration, uh, distributed company. They're not thinking of those things, not because they were dumb, because that didn't exist at the time. They were current for their time. So in the West, we have all of these social sciences. You can go to the university now and study psychology. You can go to the university now and study political science, for example. But all of those disciplines emerged and kind of left Islam behind. So when Muslims study these subjects now, they study it from a paradigm that's, that's, that's almost entirely foreign to the paradigm of Islam. And this does not mean, this is not about good and bad. We're just describing the situation. So for example, if, if somebody comes and asks uh, an usuli or a faqih or, or even asks us as we're listening to this series about what Islam would say about gender, these gender issues or transgender or... Um, you know, gender fluidity, or many, and, and I don't want to talk about it because I don't know enough about it, but I'm using this as an example that we would all know. We would essentially be confined with how these subjects have been defined and have been talked about according to certain disciplines that are quote-unquote not Islamic. That doesn't mean that they're bad, but those other disciplines are based on a paradigm that is not the paradigm of Islam. Whereas... Before this, this advent, you know, before a few hundred years ago, when the fuqahat were prese presented with, at that time, challenges, they responded to those challenges with what was appropriate at that time. Uh, like one of the most traumatic things to ever happen in the history of Islam was the Mongol invasion. I mean, the, the most traumatic thing to happen in the world, you know, not just, the, but, but, but the large parts of the Muslim world were swept. And the, the, the ulama and the thought leaders, the Muslim thought leaders at the time, they responded to these things. They helped the community get through these things. What does it mean to be invaded? What does it mean to lose land? What does it mean that our libraries are burned? You know, what does it mean that, we're sub, that we could be subjugated? Uh, how do the Muslims come together despite their differences of you know political differences at the time to ward off the the Mongol engagement uh, Mongol invasion? 
And the, the, the interesting thing about that whole episode is uh, Genghis Khan's, you know, after he passed and he had all of these sons that, that carved up what he had left them, the ones that came to the Muslim world within two, three generations, they themselves became Muslim. So even though it was like a huge shock, Islam was like this huge sponge that like just took it in and now it just became part of the Muslim world. So there was an effective mechanism of dealing with that or the, or the loss of Spain, which is an equally traumatic experience for the Muslim world. When you read about what the ulama, how they, they talked about, you know, there were Muslims uh, that had to uh, hide their Islam. These moriscos, you know, they had to pray literally in the in underground. And many of those um, families lasted even up until till today. You'll find families that they will trace their lineage to some kind of Muslim. Maybe Islam had been lost or they have some sort of uh, names or maybe they just have a Quran at home or something like that. But that was pretty traumatic. And Islam dealt with it, meaning the ulama dealt with it at that time with what was appropriate. So now this is our challenge. And again, this is not about good and bad. It's not about right and wrong. It said that Islam, we have a, our own paradigm. Again, going back to what we said in the beginning, the axis of our paradigm is the Qur'an. So we have Qur'anic principles. The Qur'an defines for us what equity means. The Qur'an defines for us, for example, the difference between genders, male and female. The Qur'an defines for us the nature of marriage, for example. Which is not to procreate. I hear a lot of Muslims say, oh, the reason we marry in Islam is to procreate. This is a, uh, a Judeo-Christian, maybe you can say, ideal. This is not an Islamic ideal. The reason we get married is to have comfort in a, in a mate. Because Allah tells us that from His signs, He created us our soulmates from ourselves. So... <laughs> So one of the things that's happening in the world of usul al-fiqh now, one of the challenges that's happening, it's a challenge but it's also very exciting, is that, and this is actually almost very entrepreneurial in a way, that a lot of these leading thinkers are now thinking about these topics. When people come and ask me a question, uh, like, um, uh, I made wudu like this, is that, I mean, that's, those are like easy questions even though you have to study and memorize those things. The questions that I get really worried about are the questions which I, I know the answer, but I know hearing the answer will sound very medieval and barbaric to the one asking the question. Those are the, those are the questions that I always try to... Sometimes I even say, I know this will sound... I, I will say things like, I know this does not make sense with our liberal sensibilities, for example. Because, the, because it's religion. Remember, we didn't make this up. We didn't make up Islam. We believe that this was revealed and we're trying to in, interpret and, and, and comply to it. That's the whole idea of submission. But because some of these social issues, many of them are social issues, but not all, have been discussed for several centuries now, based on another paradigm, it's almost impossible for us to just come in and talk about it without this background. And because usul al-fiqh is, in, is concerned with understanding the Qur'an and Sunnah, but also making sense of the Qur'an and Sunnah today, we have to make even more of an effort to understand today before we understand the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And I, and I hope that makes sense. So let me end by a very quick example uh, to give you just a flavor of what, what I mean. 
I made reference a little while ago to economics, banking, etc. So if you look at any you know, regular manual of Islamic law, uh, and you talk and you look in the section of business transactions and money and this and that, riba, all of that kind of stuff, it's all based on the concept that the currency that is being used is actual gold and silver coins, that people are walking around in their pockets with gold and silver coins, or they have like a little satchel that has gold and silver. And that's what was in the pocket of the Prophet ﷺ. You know, he had gold and silver coins that had crosses on them. Because the, the, the dirham uh, and the dinar, uh, those are words, those are Arabized words from the Greek, drachma and things like that. So at the time, at the advent, the very beginning of Islam, that's what the currency that was being used. Before Muslims started minting their own coins, those were the coins that were in the Prophet's pocket so it, when you learn law, if you don't spend enough time, you study the summary of the law. So you just learn the rules, the do's and the don'ts. So you learn that riba, this thing called riba is haram. And riba is, you know, I take a gold coin from you and then I have to pay it back too. That's riba. And then you, you might, if it's a little bit more detailed, you might have a couple of hadith and a couple of verses that support this. But the modern banking system, well, the modern currency right now is not gold and silver, it's fiat currency, which is a term that simply means paper money. And paper money has no intrinsic value, nor is the uh, paper money backed by gold and silver. But that's, that what I just said is not stated in the books of fiqh. You have to know that. You have to draw that, you have to make that bridge. And you have to, uh, then the question becomes, okay, is the paper money that we have today and you know now, I mean, how many people even have paper money in their pockets anyway? It's all digital, right? It's all like online and things like that. Does the paper money that we use today, is this money equivalent to the dinar and the dirham? Well, no, it's not. So is the riba in the paper money? That's the sequence of thinking. So this modern change in just this little issue that we're talking about finance, but it has huge implications, it needs to be thought of in light of modern realities. And we will not be able to understand the modern realities. This is for uh, people that are, are going to take this uh, forward and study these things. Unless we study the underpinning values and principles and concept behind these systems that we are using. Whether they be financial systems, whether they be social systems, whether they be you know, nation states, these type of things. So when somebody comes and asks us, asks me about banking and interest in the bank, I say, no, the interest in the bank is not riba. It's just interest. It's something separate. I, I know how it looks and smells like riba. If you read, I give one and then I get two. And, but you have to go through the mental process of understanding that this is not gold and silver, nor is the money backed by gold and silver. And the, the fuqaha of the previous generation and it's an issue of, of scholarly debate, no doubt. But one of the opinions, especially in the late Shafi'i school, that paper money has no riba in, in it. But when I say this to people, even though I've answered this question in this community maybe no less than 70 times over the last five years, people still challenge. Now, I'm not saying you have to listen to me, and I mean, that would make my life easier. But that's, I, I feel free to, to disagree, that's fine. But the reason I get challenged is that they're like, that doesn't smell right. Because we have been told for the last 50 years, 30 years, 
that interest is haram because interest is riba. And this is one of the big challenges that we have. Especially for here, I'm speaking to people that study the sharia, study fiqh and things like that. They have to up their game. And it's happening, but it's not happening fast enough. We have to really up our game. Because we have to understand what it is that we're living in, how we're living, when we're living, why we're living, and all of the systems that we use and that we have. And we have to also be brave enough to acknowledge that some of it's not going to be compatible. With, with sensitive issues like gender and sexuality and things like that, there are some things that are not going to be compatible. However, we at least need to be given the space to articulate our position based on certain values and principles. But that we have not been given the chance to. We're sort of we're playing catch-up. So anyway, this idea of updating, reviving, advancing, adding to usul al-fiqh, which is what this, this episode is about, is very important that we, that we keep in mind. So I just wanted to give a cursory sweep over it. Hopefully you've, you found some value in it and it made some sense. Um, but at least the example of the money and the banking might make what I'm trying to say a little bit more tangible. Wallahu alam. Microfinance. Yeah, well, no, not that. Where they charge 18, 20, 30 percent interest versus somebody who goes and yeah. gets, you know, payday, whatever. Payday, yeah. Isn't that riba though? And shouldn't Islam or the fit come and. It's riba, but not because. Um, it's The outcome is riba, but for a different reason than the gold and silver reason. The, 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 the outcome, it, or it's not a riba, but it's a haram transaction. Why is it haram? Because you get yourself in debt that you can't get out of. That there's no asset between you and the, and the, the debt. So it, we would say, okay, it's haram, but, for, but not for the, purpo- the reason of riba for another reason. Sure, yeah. But not because it's riba. If you follow the opinion that there's no riba in paper money. So there, there are many reasons why something can be haram. Like for example, it's haram to drink alcohol. Because alcohol consumption is haram. But it's also haram to drink poison. But not because it's alcoholic, because it could kill you. It's haram to drink things that are disgusting. Not because it can kill you or because it's uh, alcohol, because it's disgusting. It could be haram to drink urine. It's haram to, not could be. It's haram to drink urine, not because it can har- or maybe it can harm you, but not because it can harm you or can, can kill you, but it, because it's it's considered ritually impure, najis. So the same act, drinking, could be haram for multiple reasons. Likewise, in any type of financial transactions, the same uh, we can say that uh, all of these transactions are haram, but they're all haram for different reasons. That's what I was trying to say. That's true. Uh, I meant I, I was I meant human urine, but yes, and and because of this hadith, the Shafi'is say that it is permissible to use uh, things that are ritually impure in medicine. So, um, if you had like a medicine that had, um, like a lot of Muslims, they don't like to take medicine that have like the gel capsules, 
because of the gelatin and that stuff. But according to the Shafi'i opinion, they'd be like, that's permissible. Even though there, it could be an, a najasa, something that's ritually impure because of this, this hadith. And of course, the only exception to the uh, najasa of the urine is of course the urine of the Prophet wasallam. But that's another topic. Because everything from the Prophet is pure. This is one of his special traits, one of his khasa'is. Yeah, I mean that's why I, I wanted to talk about it because it's a it's a it's a this is our call to duty. This is really what we should be Muslim thinkers. This is what we should be spending our time on uh, because there are especially for younger people uh, they they can't understand many things in the faith because of this issue because they they need like a bridge. They just need something to make the the the, the point closer to them. And that bridge, that gap, is because of this, this, these issues of paradigm. That we have our, our political, social, economic paradigm, whether we acknowledge it or not, is essentially a Western paradigm. 
That's it. That's just we assume that. So when we assume that, that means that's what a paradigm is. That our actions and our thought will, will come from that. Yes, but the time changes. So how does this parable make sense today? It will be different than how this parable makes sense a hundred years ago. Yes, no, no, of course. But I'm saying that you have to make that leap because the Quran as a divine text is absolute. It, as you said, it's, it transcends the space of the, time, the here and now. But the here and now is the exact opposite. It's constantly changing. So how we interpret, how we apply the Qur'an and the Sunnah will change from time to time. The Qur'an and Sunnah doesn't change. It's the same. But how we apply it and implement it will change from time to time. And that's why this task is so difficult. is because you have to learn two things at the same time and then you have to constantly bring them together. Now when it comes to like our worship and our devotion, that's not going to change. You pray five times a day, you have to make wudu before you pray, you have to face Mecca. That's not going to change. But all of the other things of our life, those things change very rapidly. So of those changes, we have to accommodate that when we apply. Yeah, the, the rapid changing of place and time and circumstance and people makes the application of the Qur'an change. Those are the four things that cause the application or our interpretation to change. So for me, to how do you interpret the Qur'an? There's verse A. Okay, I understood the verse. That's the first step. Step two is I have to understand now. This verse is talking about... Uh, Food consumption. Okay, number two, what is the nature of food consumption now? And then I have to bring A into B. I have to bring it. And that's, that's where we have, this, this is what Usul al-Fiqh is about. We have all of these rules, all of this precedent, all of these parameters of how we bring the verse, how we bring the divine text into the here and now. But the here and now changes. So the way Imam and now we brought it might not be the same way we bring it now because life has changed. But it's still the same verse that we're trying to implement. Yes. Yeah. So um, whenever this discussion of Asul Fiqh comes up, people usually stay within the confines of the four madhabs, right? Not Hanafis, Maliki, Shabbis, etc. Um, and usually that's what most of the Muslim world, they stay within those madhabs. There have been some... No, we're, we're way beyond that. Yeah, well, I'm, that's, I'm getting another question. So, like, there's some American scholars, notably uh, Imam Warathi Muhammad, you know, and I, I don't quote me, but I think also Dr. Sherman Jackson, who favored the idea of, like, an American madhab, you know, that talk, like, because their argument is that those madhabs are uh, geographically influenced, and because we live in a different context, we should be in favor of a like an American method. So I'm just wondering what your... Those are two different things. Oh, yeah. there's, no, there's no such thing as a geographic madhab. That, that's actually... If somebody said that, that's wrong. The madhab is a system of thinking about the Qur'an and Sunnah, how you interpret it. 
You could be in Timbuktu or you could be in Toronto or you can be in Buenos Aires. It doesn't matter. A Shafi is a Shafi. Not because Imam Shafi died in Egypt or, and he lived in Iraq and he was born in Gaza. No, it has nothing to do with that. His system of thinking. So if I'm, I am a Shafi, if I go to Buenos Aires, I'm still a Shafi. If somebody asks me a question, I'm going to have the same principles of thinking. So it's not that we need an American madhab, but we need an American Islam. We need to apply Islam in a way that makes sense for the American context. That's what we were talking about. That, of course, we have to. But this idea that's only for madhab, we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. That we're, all of the fuqah, we're way beyond that. I mean, we're, the, the, first of all, we have 90 hadith, schools of law throughout Islamic history including the Sunnas and the Shia and everybody, all of us together, were 90 schools of law. There are the four famous Sunni schools because they are the most complete, they are the preserved, we have the chain of transmission and all of those things. So when you go to study the law, you have to study one of those schools of law. But that's for the student. But when we have to deal with real life and, and helping the Ummah move, we take from all of them. Sometimes we take from the Shia schools. Sometimes we take from an independent uh, school. Sometimes we, we engage in ijtihad fresh from the texts. So all of the f- fatwa councils and fatwa by way beyond this idea of only one madhab or four madhabs. I mean, it's way beyond that. So it's happening, but it's not happening fast enough and you know things like that. And to what extent could we take from the other schools? Do we have to mostly stay in one school? I mean, I'm... For students and scholars, do they have to mostly stay in one school or like, are they allowed to just go? The idea of staying in a school, not staying in a school, this applies to the expert, to the student, you know, to the person that studied. The, the, the general person, the general people that, or the layman, lay people, let's say, they follow the opinion of the teacher that's teaching them. So this burden is on the teacher, not on the, the lay person. Uh, and there are there are rules to sticking and not sticking, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that inshallah. But the, the the main thing is you can't engage in one act, following multiple schools in such a way that every person of that school would say that that act was invalid. So if I got married without a witness, without a mahar, without a uh, wali, without because one madhab says this, one madhab says. And I did the marriage, and if all of those madhabs were sitting as judges, they would all say that this is invalid. The Hanafi would say it's invalid, the Shafi would say it's invalid, the Maliki would say it's invalid, the Hanbali would say it's invalid. So therefore, this was an incorrect way of taking from the madhabs. Yeah, but, but you can take in such a way that, that, that the act is okay, and then this is the job of the teacher or the expert. It's a little bit complicated, but I mean that example might make it make it simple. Yeah. So we don't need an American madhab. We need an American Islam. We need an Islam that works for our day-to-day life. We have to keep that in mind. The madhab is not territorial, even though there is a historic, you know, um, proliferation of the schools of law. Of course, I mean without doubt, you know, the Malikis are primarily North African. Uh, the Hanafis are primarily Ottoman, and you know things like that. Uh, the Hanbalis are sort of in the Levant. Uh, the Shafi'is are, uh, you know, Iraq and uh, the Malay world and, you know, things like that. Uh, Jordan, Egypt. Uh, but but that's, uh, that's something separate. In all of those places, you have people of other madhab. I mean, and now the world is global. So it's not a, there's no, there's no parameter in a school of law that, that it limits that thinking 
to the um, uh, to the territory. So we don't want an American. I think it's. I, I think I understand what they're trying to say, but I think it's just the wrong word. Madhab is the wrong word. Yes. Yeah, well, just because something is haram, it doesn't stop us from doing it. So, don't you know? We're not going to approach it that way. But uh, the issue of of job and and study, there's there's no. Sometimes, as parents, we 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 have this thinking that if our if my kid goes to school, just works hard, gets good grades, they'll get a good job. That doesn't exist anymore. The people that get the best jobs don't go to school at all. By the way, the people that are really making a difference, they don't go to school at all. I'm not saying don't go to school. I'm just saying that this correlation doesn't exist. So as parents, we have to... Why is that the case? Because your education is supposed to give you a set of skills that are in, that are in need by the employer. I have hired people before. I never, ever, 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 not once looked at where the person went to school. All I cared about is can this person do what I need done? So education is supposed to train for that. But the problem with our educational system is it's like a 19th century or 20th, what, are, what century are we on? 21st. It's, so it's a 20th century education, but we're living in the 21st century. And that's why there are all of these like STEM programs, and, but still it's not keeping up. So what's important for our children is that, you know what, what, what they need what employers are looking for, they're looking for people that can be empathetic. They're looking for people that can communicate. They're looking for people that can be compassionate. We don't, they're not taught that in school. The only thing that they're taught in school is nefsi, 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 how do I pass the exam? But that's not what an employer wants. An employer wants somebody that can write an email without making a mistake, that can give up and give a presentation and communicate the idea soundly and things like that, which is why we need to supplement our children's education with other activities, after school activities, for things that are actually being hired for in the, in the workforce, whether it be in the technology. You know, a lot of venture capital funds, they hire people that have a philosophy major, and I kick myself for dropping, that was my major when I went to college, and then my parents convinced me, no, I mean, I changed it to religion, but still, it was, yeah, and it's close, but, but um, why? Because those are the people that can think outside the box. They can understand ethics. They can understand uh, principles and how to think from first principles and things like that. So we need, to, we need to give them that education that will place them to get those jobs. And uh, we have to have a community. If you're, if you're alone and always on your phone and, you know, if people get depressed, they don't have enough likes on their posts or, or comments. It really leads to real anxiety. You know, so we need to we need to do this. We need to be as a community and and uh, have social interactions. And you know, we need to revive these things to, to make the children healthy. Uh, but there is mental illness as well. So if people have mental illness, they need to see the experts. Of course, what I'm saying is not go going to matter. 
So it <clears throat> doesn't matter what you do on your grades, you know, at all. Trust me, you know. I mean, there's a Kaaba in the in the heavens. Bayt al Ma'mur, and the angels make tawaf. And each angel that makes tawaf, they leave, and another angel comes. It's a constantly a replenishment of angels that make the tawaf around that Kaaba. So the Kaaba <clears throat> in Mecca is directly below that spot in the heavens, you know, wherever it is. Uh, so we can't move the Kaaba. We can't like come up with like this McKinsey plan or let's move Mecca to, you know, Texas because there's more space. It won't work because that's we're still going to pray towards that spot because it's it's not the bricks, it's that spot. The cube that we see, this is just a representation of the Kaaba. Because between the Kaaba on the earth and the Kaaba in the sky, this is this column. All of that is the Kaaba. So if I was making tawaf in the air, and the books of fiqh, they say this, and I cross through across the Kaaba, then that, that one is not valid. Because I crossed. Like if, you, if the door of the Kaaba was open and they had a back door and you were like, you know what, I'm going to cut the tawaf. I'm just going to go through the Kaaba. That wouldn't count. That, that would not count as one tawaf. Likewise, if you were up you know, in a helicopter making tawaf, you would have to go around that space. You couldn't cut through it or else it wouldn't count. So the space above the Kaaba and the space below the Kaaba is part of the Kaaba according to Islamic law. So if you drill the hole underneath the Kaaba, it's going to emerge somewhere in the Pacific, right? So if you're in that spot in the Pacific, you could face any way to Mecca because it would be equidistance. All the fiqh, this is fiqh gymnastics. Yeah. Yes, but maybe we, I would call it different things. So I think, I, I think what I like is to call true Islam, Usuli Islam. Because inside Usuli Islam, there are many manifest, many interpretations, many differences. And they're all equally valid at the same time. Even now, the Sunnis accept the Shia and the Shia accept the Sunni. I mean, on paper, we accept each other, right? So all of that I call Usuli Islam. Usuli Islam, when you use this word, this means that the person speaking about Islam is thinking. They're not just memorizing and repeating. No, they're thinking. Ah, oh, you have a point. Yeah, I didn't think about that. You know, oh, cryptocurrency. Let me think about, you know, there's a thought. This is, this is working. And when this works, for all of us, as long as we agree to certain principles, our thinking process can be different. And we will come up with different results. And all of the results, we say, all of this is Islam. The other Islam... It's not Islam, it's, you know, 
you know, it's a form of, of Khawarijism. It's a form of people leaving the group and, and moving away to themselves. Like you said, calling people to themselves. Yeah, I mean this, but people get very upset when I say this. But this is true. You said it, not me. So if you're mad, you can... But yes, it's true. It's, not me, <laughs> it's true. I mean, it's true that these groups, they have an agenda and they put it in Islamic words. And people, because Muslims are good-hearted people, they, they, fall, they fall into it. And yeah, we have problems. This is what I was talking about, the khutbah, about the hadith of the boat. The people on the bottom of the boat, they had a good niyyah. They didn't want to bother the people on the top of the boat. They were wrong. Al-Fudayl ibn al-Ayyad radiallahu anhu, one of the, you know, the saints of the Salaf, he said, it's not enough to have a good intention. You have to be right. You know, I have to be right. If I come to Brother Muhsan and say, Brother Muhsan, I'm going to redo the mosque for you by barakah, you know. I'm going to make dua all night. Just let, let me do it and I'm going to rebuild the mosque. You know, he would be wrong if he agreed because the, the, the mosque will end up collapsing. I don't know anything about building and the drywall and the code and the HVAC and all. I don't know how to do that. You have to bring someone who knows how to do it. So it's not just a baraka thing. You have to be right as well. So these people, they call to their own way, their own agenda using qala Allah wa qala Rasulullah. And this is not Islam. This is not the way of, of the Prophet Wasallam. So you can call that what you want. Yeah. How do you see the, the ulama, this, this, this gap between the, uh, what the, the uh, knowledge of, of, like technical knowledge, for example, of, of banking and finance, and, and the, what the ulama know today, how do you see that being bridged? Because these disciplines are so sophisticated that you could spend a lifetime just devoted to these yes. topics. So they have, to, they have to collaborate. So when I was in, in the fatwa office in Egypt, the mufti, he used to meet with the governor of the Egyptian Central Bank once a month. It was like the first Sunday of every month. And the, the governor's job was to explain, you know, currency, policy, uh, uh, you know, these different banking transactions, you know, th these like high-level concepts. So it's always in collaboration. Sometimes they do them in conferences. So somebody will host a conference on, you know, uh, like medical issues and ethical issues and the Sharia. And, and people will put papers and these papers are published and things like that. So there's an ongoing conversation. But it has to be done in collaboration because the information, as you said, is too much for one person. to. You, you, I can't possibly be responsible for knowing all of this stuff. So what will end up happening is you will end up having subspecialties. So I'll, you'll have somebody who, I'm a specialist in, in fiqh and medicine. I'm a specialist in fiqh and finance. I'm a specialist in like fiqh and politics, for example. Uh, because it's impossible for one person to know, because the things are like so micro, so micro. Uh, and you know, somebody's gotta be dedicated to that and understand that it's not enough just to like have gone to the seminary or the madrasa and studied with the, you know, the maulana. You have to also know this other stuff. Which is why a lot of people that go to these seminaries, they don't know how to, anything about technology, social media, they don't know how to talk, they don't know how to go on TV, and, and, and they end up sounding very archaic. And, and people dismiss them, but they actually know a lot. 
but they're just not, they, they need to be more polished, is what, what it, the case may be. But it's only through collaboration. We have to collaborate. Yes, uncle. Sorry, this gentleman, he's had his hand up for a while. One second. He's just hiding in the back. Alaikum <laughs> salam. That's the question right there. So the faqih is asking. This in, in Islamic law is called the illa, the reason behind uh, the, the ruling. If someone needs to make the adhan. Just make the an adhan, and I'll answer this question very quickly, and then we'll pray. Because we can't delay the adhan.